Hey, this is National Geographic Explorer Mike Lebecki here with my daughter Liliana Lebecki. We want to say it's time to get out and vote. We got to choose freedom. We got to choose the choices that are healthy for our planet and our global community. And we hope you'll get out and vote and make sure you have your voice. The time is now and life is sweet. Hey there, it's Rebecca Rush calling in from Idaho. I'm a professional athlete, author, event director, and really passionate supporter of public lands and our environment. And I know you guys are too, or you wouldn't be listening. So I just want to encourage you to get out and vote and really use your voice. It's up to us to stick together on this one. Hey guys, you heard it. It's time to vote. Are you worried about where our country is heading? Do you want to make a difference but aren't sure where to start? Well, this election is a great place to begin. Your voice matters in these elections. We believe that, and our friends that you'll hear from throughout this podcast, well, they do too. So, stay tuned to be inspired and educated by some of the most powerful voices in support of our environment in the upcoming election. From the Wilderness Society to Patagonia to the Outdoor Industry Association, Protect our winners and finishing with the initiative in Washington State that's on the brink of radically changing the way we consume carbon. Stay tuned. Born from our experiences as explorers. And forged by a commitment to the positive change we want to see in the world. This is the Adventure Activist Podcast. Yeah, look, we've seen time and again in elections across the West, voters come out and say very clearly that, that public lands matter. Uh, they matter to their, their daily lives. They matter to uh, the traditions they want to pass on to the children. They matter to their favorite pastimes. Our public lands are integral to the fabric of our nation. On one side, we have the oil industry, and on the other side, you have the largest, not only behind a climate or an environmental initiative, but behind any issue in the history of our state. Over 400 organizations, over 500 businesses who are standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, this is time for us to take action on climate change. Unions of tribal nations, uh, communities of color and low-income groups, environmental groups, large and small, you know, and, and that choice is really clear. You either stand with uh, the vast majority of the community of Washington or with these out-of-state oil companies. Welcome to the Adventure Activist Podcast. I'm your host, Terry O'Connor. This is the place for meaningful conversations with accomplished athletes, inspiring adventurers, and influential activists. Through their journeys, stories, and life discoveries, we deconstruct how our guests add more meaningful value to the world and do some good with their passion for adventure. Welcome to episode 16, another Activist Toolkit episode, Vote the Outdoors. We know you, like us, love the adventures we've had here on this planet. We also know you have been inundated with news about the upcoming election. It's almost time for the votes to be counted, and we want to make sure that yours is one of them. Elections matter, and it is critical you get involved and vote on outdoor issues. You know, we put this voters edition together to motivate you to learn more about the companies and organizations that are responding to the issues we face. They are the influential players urging us to show up to the polls, educating us on how our vote can help save the planet, and putting people in office who will help us protect it. If you feel like your voice hasn't mattered over the past few years, or you've been nervous to try to make your voice heard because, well, no one is listening, I'd like to offer a different perspective from my conversation with Chase Huntley, who oversees the Climate and Energy Program for the Wilderness Society in Washington, D.C. At the Wilderness Society, we spend a good amount of our time focused on how to uh, engage Americans in protecting wilderness and inspire all Americans to care for wild places. 
so much of the work I do when focused on how our public lands are put to use to power the nation focuses on decisions that are made both by Congress and by the Federal Bureau of Land Management. As we know, the public land system is vast and varied. There's more than 240 million acres uh, within that system. A lot of people think, though, just because those lands are held uh, and managed for the public that they're protected, and that couldn't be further from the truth. The BLM lands, where much of the nation's energy comes from, are managed for a variety of uses, including energy development. And that's part of the reason why about 30% of our energy and about 25% of our national emissions uh, can be traced back to the oil, gas, and coal pulled out of public lands and waters. So just because our public lands are held in public hands doesn't mean that they're being managed for the public good. And elections have a big impact on how those lands are managed and what priorities are uh, put ahead. In the last couple of years, uh, we've seen a repeat of uh, song and dance that we went through for almost a decade under the Bush administration. Uh, and that was a single-minded focus on driving forward energy development. But unique to the last couple of years is this mantra of energy dominance. This administration has made it very clear that the highest priority use for our public lands is development of domestic energy resources, apparently at almost any cost, because this administration has initiated perhaps the single largest regulatory assault on how our public lands are managed in U.S. history. We've seen barely a week go by uh, where there hasn't been some uh, significant attack on policies or staffing decisions, uh, funding levels, uh, or policy priorities that shape how our public lands are managed. And in almost every case, energy industries, especially the oil, gas, and coal industries, are the largest beneficiary of those policy changes. And how do you see of public opinion is making a difference in what is currently the, the status quo in that state of affairs with this kind of mantra of energy dominance at all costs. Yeah, look, we've seen time and again in elections across the West, voters come out and say very clearly that, that public lands matter. Uh, they matter to their, their daily lives. They matter to uh, the traditions they want to pass on to the children. They matter to their favorite pastimes. Our public lands are integral to the fabric of our nation. And it's very clear that the American public has higher expectations for our lands uh, than just energy development, which may have been the primary use back in the 1920s. But as we move up on the 2020s, it's very clear that there are uh, a lot of other uses that have a higher priority. The outdoor recreation industry being you know, one of the largest beneficiaries of this huge tracts of land that are so unique to uh, America, but as well the traditional and cultural resources that are protected by virtue of being held in, in trust by the federal government. Uh, if the big game species and habitat that on private lands uh, has been fractured are still found in relatively unfragmented blocks on public lands. Um, our public lands matter, and they matter for a lot of reasons. You know, polling has shown us as recently as uh, about a month ago in a, a poll conducted by the uh, Center for Western Priorities called Winning the West, that more than three quarters of Westerners expect that lands are gonna be managed for uh, multiple uses and uses other than energy development. So it leaves one wondering why uh, this administration has such a single-minded focus on uh, energy. And you know, there are, there are a number of opportunities to show this administration what the American public really wants to, how they want their public lands to be managed. Comment periods are one, public houses are another, simply going out and visiting public lands um, are another. But any way that uh, public opinion can be expressed, I think we've seen very clearly that it's more than just energy folks expect. And what about the power of just becoming a registered voter? <laughs> that's one of the, the greatest privileges and duties that all of us as Americans have. Um, and that's the opportunity to make a difference in participating in, uh, in elections. Um, so I think across the board, um, one of the most important things any American can do is make sure that their preferences uh, are, are heard on election day. How do you respond to, say, uh, I just think about the citizens of Utah who seem to 
support an overwhelming majority for protection of public lands, specifically the Bears Ears campaign. Uh, and despite that, it seemed like a decision from our administration was essentially shoved down your throat. I mean, in, in the spirit of this kind of mantra of energy dominance or, or however they wanted to spin it. I, how do you respond to people that may have made a comment and try to encourage them still to put their voice out there in, in light of this competition we're facing? Yeah, I guess I'd say three things. First is don't despair. Elections have consequences, and the current administration is using its discretionary authority wherever possible to put energy first. We'd suggest that the decision made in shrinking the scope of the Bears Ears National Monument and Grand Staircase is illegal and beyond their discretionary authority. Uh, so. I think it's very possible that the courts are going to share in our view uh, and support the interests of the, the several tribes that push for creation of the monument in the first place. But the first piece of advice is don't despair. Your voice does make a difference. And at a minimum, uh, the decisions that this administration has made could have been worse and they could have been much more far reaching than if three million Americans stood up and said, uh, we don't want to see you shrink the scope of our national monuments across the West uh, and in the East and offshore. They're just too important to us and to our natural heritage. But the second piece is to, to keep trying. There is no fight that's going to be won if we don't engage in the struggle. And we have begun to see in the last year, for example, a number of parcels have been put forward for oil and gas leasing that are being deferred by the administration. Uh, this wasn't happening a year ago uh, when we saw the, the least everywhere approach that the administration put forward lead to more acres offered in uh, in one year than in entire two-term administrations uh, in the past. A lot of it having to do with a very unsuccessful lease sale that the administration tried to push in Alaska. But nevertheless, the uh, we have seen the administration respond in certain local cases to uh, public pressure, not putting conservation management forward as an option, but at least deferring their efforts to lease high value areas uh, around Livingston, Montana, around Chaco Canyon uh, National Park, around uh, high value big game corridors in Wyoming, um, even near uh, other national parks, uh, including in Utah. And so to your, your third point, I offer my third point, which is that the public's will will eventually triumph. And uh, we have to engage, we can't give up, but be confident that in the long run, our public lands are managed in the public interests and our court system and future administrations, as well as future Congresses, will have to accept the fact that our expectations for our public lands today are that they are helping us to contribute to climate change solutions, not continuing to fuel the climate change problem, that they're supporting one of the fastest growing industries in the United States in the form of the outdoor recreation industry, uh, that it's respectful for the native nations who were here long before our BLM and our Forest Service were created and honor the spiritual and cultural connection that are, the native people that occupied this country be before colonization still have uh, in terms of a connection to those places. So. Um, the fight's far from over, and uh, the, the last couple of years have been tough, let's be honest. I have seen more change in the policy framework uh, than I have in, in the prior 10 years that I've been here. But one hidden uh, silver lining is that the uh, I've even heard privately that a number of folks in the oil and gas industry are disappointed with the pace of change because they know that the policies that this administration has been pushing for our public lands are wildly out of step with what, what Americans want to see. Is there anything else in passing? Uh, I think that was a great <laughs> motivation for our listeners, but anything else in passing before we close up here that you'd like to share with any of our listeners? Though? Yeah, I just underscore uh, what I think is the, the purpose for this episode. Whatever motivates you, get out and vote. At times that are as crazy as the times are now, um, you may feel not just that your voice doesn't matter but and that it, it, it isn't being heard, but in in any instance, you got to show up and getting out and getting and voting your conscience uh, is critically important. It's what keeps this democracy functioning. Um, so please now more than ever, get out, get registered, get to the polls next week.
Hi, this is Gavin McClurg. I'm a professional paraglider and Patagonia ambassador. We've got a big day coming up, November 6th. Get out and vote. We just heard why your vote is so important. Up next, we have Corley Kenna, Senior Director of Communications at Patagonia, to explain their Time to Vote initiative to get people to the polls. Patagonia has partnered with a diverse group of companies from across the country, including Vanity Fair Corp, Kaiser Permanente, and even Walmart and others, in a nonpartisan business-led movement to increase voter participation. Let's let Corley explain the spirit behind Time to Vote. on the idea. So one of the main reasons that people give for not voting is busy, you know, a busy work and life schedule. And so we thought if we could remove that work schedule barrier, we could help increase voter turnout. So our commitment is very purposefully not overly prescriptive. We recognize that all these companies are very different shapes and sizes, small businesses, big businesses. And so what we're asking is for each of the CEOs that represent these companies to commit to ensuring that their employees have the time they need to go vote. So at Patagonia, we'll be shutting down. We have a sign on our door that says, when the polls open, we close. And that was the right decision for us. But for other companies like Lyft, for instance, we don't want Lyft drivers to shut down on election day. They're they're committed to helping drive people to the polls. And so we <laughs> want that to happen. And um, so, um, so they'll work with their drivers to make sure they have other resources to either vote by mail or vote early or just have a shift that allows them the time they need to get to the polls. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, I think especially in the insight that the 2016 presidential election was decided by something like 107,000 votes. I imagine with all these entities and all the employees involved, I mean, how many how many employees could this potentially affect? Millions. It's hard to get a proper count, but because some yeah, companies are, you know, don't disclose that information, and and the ones that do, it's just hard to tell which have eligible voters and so forth. But um, but yeah, we we estimate that this will affect well over two million um, American voters, which is great. Well, let's uh, tap back to. Patagonia and your ethic or mission as a brand. And why did you really latch on to this and feel it was so integral to vote uh, in this cycle? We actually first decided to shut down for election day in 2016. And our CEO, Rose Marcario, thought it was just really important for our employees to to be able to vote. And so she said, you know what, we're going to shut down and everybody should go vote, volunteer if you're so inclined, but make sure you vote. And um, it was she, the feedback she got was so positive. And so many people wrote her back to say, you know, without this, I wouldn't have been able to vote. So thank you. And so she decided to do it again for these elections. And we just wanted to take it one step further and in, encourage other companies to join us. And out of that came this time to vote movement, which, yeah, we're really excited about. It's really taken off. That's cool. So the legacy was really quite employee driven. Very much so. Very much so. And I and I think the legacy employee driven, and this is a commitment that from the company on the sort of theory that democracy requires showing up. And so that's what we're telling our community. You, you make a vote plan, you know who's on the ballot. And like we have in years past, we're encouraging our community to take a look at the issues and candidates on the ballot and to vote with the planet in mind. Is there anything that Patagonia is particularly aligned with or pushing um, or wants to bring attention to with this election cycle? You know, last year, like many, we just saw one attack after another on our public lands and waters. And we see the upcoming midterm elections as an opportunity to raise awareness for what's going on and for these attacks on our public lands and waters and to support leaders who want to protect wild places and who are champions of public lands. And so for the first time ever, 
We are endorsing two candidates. Both are running for U.S. Senate and both are running to protect public lands and waters. And, and that's an issue that's central to both races. So we're supporting John Tester in Montana. He's running for re-election. And we're uh, supporting Jackie Rosen, who's running for Senate in Nevada. Like I said, yeah, both candidates, we think, will stand up for public lands and waters. And we felt by educating and engaging our community and encouraging them, them to vote, we could really help protect public lands and waters. And, and how exactly are you supporting them? Is it in publication, publicity, or maybe you can explain a little bit more about that? We're using the channels that we have to, that we would normally use to talk to our communities about issues of importance. So on our website, our endorsement of these two candidates can be seen there. We have blog posts about the issues in these states that you can read about on the cleanest line. We've put some posts out on social media, of course, both nationally, but also in, in Montana and in Nevada. And we're doing some advertising, some digital advertising as well. Do you worry at all about backlash from advocating particular candidates or is is that old news to you guys? You guys are used to weathering that storm. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Corporations getting involved with elections and influencing policy is definitely nothing new. What is new is what we're doing, which is putting our logo on, on everything that we do. And um, we didn't want to contribute to the dark money problem. We wanted to be very transparent about what we're doing. And, and we don't see this as like a foray into politics, what we think, this is not like a born desire to get into the partisanship of Washington and, or anything like that. In fact, it's really the opposite. This is about standing up for the millions of Americans who want to see wild places protected and also just a continuation of all the advocacy work that we've been doing really since the company was started. I mean, really, it's consistent with your mission statements or the latter part, right? I mean, you guys are hoping to build the best product and cause no unnecessary harm but really using your business to implement solutions to environmental crisis. And this is just a branch of that objective as you see it. Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, last year we also did something that we had never done before, which we decided to file a lawsuit to protect Bears Ears National Monument. It was the sort of last resort option to protect this amazing, magical place. And we did it alongside the tribes who also want to see that monument protected and other conservation groups. And I think just these times kind of call for for new tactics. And you're right, at the end of the day, this is all about following our own mission and standing up for people and places that, you know, that we, that was the reason, that are the reasons why our company was created. <laughs> Obviously, uninformed people can call you elitist, this kind of idea of uh, backlash. Uh, do you think that's just people not really understanding what you're trying to advocate for? It's not about a Democrats, not about a Republican. It's really about solutions to the environmental crisis. The majority of our community, I think, has, has welcomed this, this news and very much understands why it's important to uphold champions for public lands and waters, especially those that are running for office. The critics that tell us that we should stay out of politics and stick to making jackets don't understand our, our mission, I think. And like our company wouldn't be around if we didn't have places to explore. So fighting for them very much is a part of who we are. And it's, it's why I think we have a successful business. Hello, this is Luke Nelson, taking a break from wandering in the mountains to remind you to get out and vote. Get down on the highway, I'm staying in the lines. I know you're out there waiting in the country, hoping that I realize I come alive with you. Most days The outdoor industry employs more than 7.6 million Americans, generates more than $887 billion in consumer spending, and accounts for 2% of the United States GDP. And since 1989, the Outdoor Industry Association has been the trade organization and the voice of the outdoor recreation industry across the country, serving manufacturers, retailers, nonprofits, and recreationists like yourself. 
Recently, they have made a more concerted move into electoral politics and have developed a voter's guide for the election ahead. Let's let Alex explain why and how they made this move. I'm Alex Boyan. I'm the political director for Outdoor Industry Association. I've been with OIA for almost 15 years and done all kinds of work in the government affairs office. But we really made a concerted effort over the last year to get involved in electoral politics and to give the outdoor industry and voters across the country resources to be an informed voter and, and education about how they can vote the outdoors. Yeah. And Alex, I'm, I'm kind of curious, is that a new move for the Outdoor uh, Industry Association? And, and I guess maybe that really leads to why why are these elections so important for the American outdoor industry and why should we care? Yeah. You know, it really is a new initiative for OIA. This is pretty new to the industry too, getting this involved in electoral politics. We've done some work through our political action committee, OIA PAC, by giving you know campaign contributions to members of Congress that supports public lands, um, climate action, um, international trade agendas, uh, our international trade agenda, things like that. But one thing we really saw clearly after the election in 2016 and throughout the events of 2017 is that who we elect changes the landscape uh, uh, very drastically or can change the landscape very drastically. And, you know, as devastating as the monuments issue was over the last, you know, 18 months, one of the benefits or one of the silver linings is that I like to say, is that it really galvanized the industry and showed us that when we all come together, perhaps under this banner of Vote the Outdoors, um, we have a lot of power and a lot of influence over both kind of policy in Washington, D.C. and state houses across the country, but also in electoral politics. Candidates really want to know what we stand for as an industry, what our values are, and how their campaign and, and what they stand for might harmonize with that. And we just saw it time and time again in candidates across the country and the way this campaign was really picked up by, you know, our statistics say that uh, more than 10 million people so far engaged the Vote the Outdoors campaign. So we think that we really found uh, a very strong uh, platform and message to communicate to candidates and to voters. And we're very pleased to see it um, so widely adopted across the industry and across, you know, outdoor enthusiasts and voters across the country. You know, in your voting guide, you endorse candidates based on kind of uh, key four categories, as I saw it, recreation, economy, public lands, trade and climate. And how did you pick those four categories? And perhaps we expand on why you believe those might be the most critical factors for the upcoming election. And if you can comment on any of that. Sure. Well, the outdoor industry has, I would say, increased visibility over the last year and a half, and our issues, our policy agenda and our issues have really attracted attention from both elected officials um, who are currently in office and candidates who wanted to run for those offices. And so the recreation economy is probably our industry's most powerful tool uh, to go and, and, and tell policymakers, tell these elected leaders from across the country, here's what your recreation economy is in your state or your congressional district. Here's what the economic impact is. And here are the policies that you can pursue to support that recreation economy, this, this powerful economic driver. Those other three areas, the public lands, international trade, and climate, all have a very direct impact on you know recreation economies from across the country. And uh, we all have seen public lands, where, how that's manifest, both in the monuments issue, the, the fact that this Congress let the Land and Water Conservation Fund, arguably the most successful conservation program in American history, they let it expire at the end of September because of political bickering. And, and we hope to see that, you know, renewed. But but public lands clearly is kind of what I'd say the, the kind of heart of this industry, the values of this industry. And without public lands, there would be no recreation economy. But then we've seen on the international trade front, you know, some of these businesses that are either making their products in the United States and, and using inputs uh, from Canada or Mexico or from some other places or companies that in, import, you know, their finished product are being rocked right now by these trade wars that the administration has launched. And so you can argue, you know, trade policy all day with people. But the fact of the matter is, is to make sure that OA's job is to make sure that, you know, these products are getting from the manufacturing location to 
the, the retail at the most uh, fit in the most efficient and cost effective way possible to make sure that, you know, as many Americans as possible can afford these, you know, wonderful performance uh, apparel products, performance footwear products, the tents, the accessories, the bags, backpacks, et cetera, that really make those outdoor experiences fun and, and enjoyable. And so trade is a very critical part of, you know, the industry's policy agenda. And then lastly, on climate, you know, you could argue uh, climate is so much bigger than just this outdoor industry. Climate very clearly is an existential issue for the United States, for the world, uh, for, for all of us. And what we say is, you know, climate change impacts, uh, the outdoor industry is among the first to experience the impacts of climate change because, you know, our customers and, and, and outdoor enthusiasts go outside so frequently, particularly, you know, on trails, through the mountains, in the oceans, in the, in the um, lakes and waterways across the country, and they will actually see and, and, and the, those impacts of climate change. So we feel that, you know, as big of an issue and as, as important an issue as climate change is, the outdoor industry really does have a unique voice and that should be reflected in some of the policy pursuits. I mean, in this Congress uh, in this last year, the U.S. House of Representatives introduced a, a resolution that talked about this exact point, that uh, climate change has a very specific and unique impact on our industry and on the $887 billion outdoor recreation economy. So we want candidates, we want elected officials, we want leaders to you know do something about it. There's, too, there's been too much, uh, particularly in Congress and at the federal level, inaction and too much talk. And, and so we're supporting a lot of these members who will, we believe will take action. Well, for those who may be listening that clearly share your values, maybe we can finish up on uh, how they can best use this valuable resource that you've put together. What can they expect to find there and uh, how do they find it? Well, if you go to outdoorindustry.org, voters guide is right there on the front page, or you can just Google OIA voters guide and it's the very number one thing that pops up so just if one thing you remember out of this is oia voters guide just enter that into google and it'll pop up right there in the, in the results but how they can use it is here we are five days out uh, from the election and they can go in there there's some resources both on the people that we endorsed and why as well as several ballot measures in colorado montana georgia uh, washington state you know uh washington state is a very important i1631 it's going to be the first carbon fee in the country um, so we endorsed that. Um, we also, for the first time ever, opposed a ballot measure, Colorado's Amendment 74, uh, that would cause significant harm to funding for outdoor recreation and conservation. And then we also talk about some additional watchworthy races, some other races around the country that the, where the outcomes are going to be important to the future of the industry. And then lastly, if you don't see your own race there, we give you some resources to go and find what's going to be on your ballot. There's a link at the bottom of it where it says click right here and it'll take you to a website where all you have to do is enter your zip code and it will pull up everything that's on your ballot with background information as to what's on your ballot. But in the longer term, I mean, we really hope people will use this and, and obviously in the elections that are coming in 2019, but really again in 2020, this will grow and become uh, uh, even an even stronger resource for people to understand where are the candidates who are running for county commissioner, my state legislature, for governor or for the U.S. Congress. Where are they on these important issues? And we're going to help people, um, you know, get educated themselves and then educate their candidates. And, you know, we hope that over time that we have a Congress and federal offices and state offices uh, that embrace uh, the outdoor recreation economy, which is the future of the American economy. What's up? This is Brody Levin. I'm a professional ski mountaineer. It's that time of year. No, not time to ski yet. It's time to vote. In the last segment, we heard Alex explain how important climate advocacy is in their campaign. Protect Our Winners is one of the leading climate advocacy groups in the country. Lindsay is manager for advocacy and campaigns for the nonprofit. We reached out to her and began by asking how the 2016 elections impacted their mission and motivated them to start their political action fund and voters guide. Last night I was driving, thinking to myself. I was off in the distance, far away from everyone else. There was a light on the highway. 
started in August of 2016, and I think, not surprisingly, the general election really changed things. I think there were a lot of us that went into 2016 thinking that climate champions would win and that people that cared about climate would move forward. And the reality is that's not what we saw. And in 2016, we elected a president who, you know, quite frankly, could really care less about climate, nor does he really think it's it's real and happening. And I think that was a wake up call for our industry. And I think for many people of realizing that this isn't a priority and this isn't something that our politicians care about. And so at POW, you know, we believe in turning passionate outdoor people into effective climate advocates and engaging them on climate advocacy. But I think folks like Jeremy Jones and on our board, the Aspen Skiing Company, VP of Sustainability, Auden Schendler, we're really sitting around and saying, you know, at some point we can't pass carbon policy, you know, carbon pricing policy, renewable policy, any, you know, proactive climate policy if the people that we elect don't think it's real. And so there became a lot of talk of how can we start an action fund, which is the legal entity of 501c4 that can take on candidate work and electoral work. And from that conversation um, in 2017, uh, POW Action Fund was born. Tell us uh, a bit more now about really where that has gone and and leading up into the elections for this next week, I guess, what your initial plan of attack was and and where you think kind of key opportunities are with your influence right now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's important to say POW Action Fund, you know, it's brand new. It's never done this type of work before. And so, so much about diving into elections in 2018 as an action fund has been about testing things out and trying to see what works. Obviously, if we knew what worked when it comes to campaigns, you know, somebody would win handedly every time. And so I think it really is about testing theories and and seeing what works. And at POW Action Fund, our assumption really is that we have a lot of millennial followers and we have a lot of young people that follow our work and are excited to engage, but we do believe a lot of them are non-voters. And so our goal is to really test that out and try to see how many outdoor enthusiasts can we really encourage to turn their passion into purpose and show up at the polls and vote. And so what we're trying to do is really lower the bar for engagement and do that in an exciting, fun way. So doing that communication through our athletes and having our athletes share tools and resources to become registered to vote or to make a plan to vote. We just launched a tool actually yesterday yesterday that helps you kind of plug in where you live and um, will show up with your poll locations and it can send you text message reminders to basically be able to, you know, make an actual plan. It can populate like iCal invitations and things like that. So you literally have time on your calendar blocks to go vote. We've also launched, uh, POW Action Fund launched a voter guide. So looking at every federal and gubernatorial candidate across 35 states and showing their positions on climate change and where they stand. And so trying to, you know, get these tools and resources built and then push them out to that community to really encourage people. You know, I think it's really easy to to look at the millennial population and say, you know, they're not voting in midterm elections. You know, it's pretty incredible. It's it's like, you know, 19 percent of millennials voted in in 2014. And, you know, across America, we only saw 36 percent around there of the population actually turning out to vote in 2014. And so I think it's easy for people to be apathetic and say, hey, like, you know, my vote doesn't matter. And, you know, there's all this political noise out there and it's it's too much. And, you know, I'm just not going to do it. But the reality is when we look at the breakdown of, you know, how many people vote Democrat, how many people vote Republican, how many people vote other parties, and then how many people don't vote that population is pretty massive. And so you actually do have the ability to make a change. And that's what we're trying to really pass on to the outdoor community. I I think there is, for a lot of younger individuals, a sense of kind of futility as if their vote won't make a difference or won't matter. How have you guys decided to combat that? Is it really leveraging the positive emotion about this common identity in the ethic of obviously being an outdoor recreationist, a skier, or is there something else? Yeah, I think it is about that. And I think it's also about trying to make it more of a social norm. I think, you know, a lot of young people don't necessarily talk about voting, but when you have, you know, Jeremy Jones being like, this is the most important thing that you can do. And, you know, athletes across the spectrum, you know, whether they're snowboarders or climbers or runners, you know, saying, hey, I'm doing this and this is something that's really important. Civic engagement is a way to make a difference. And we can't, you know, afford to watch our public land suffer and 
and our climate you know, become really unstable because it's not gonna be effective for the things that we love to do and the way that we live our life. And so I think that's that's kind of one angle is really trying to connect you know, with people on that personal note. And then I also think it's kind of dropping a bit of the rhetoric and just kind of hitting people where it's it's real and just saying, hey, this is you know exactly what I just said. It's like, you know, skiing is changing, you know, trail running is changing, mountain bike is Mike mountain biking is changing all these activities that we love are, you know, suffering in an increasing increasingly volatile climate. So trying to show that there are opportunities to make a change. I think the other thing that we've pointed out is we've tried to showcase a little bit more of how close elections really are and that turning out actually does matter, I think. I have the kind of this favorite story from a special election last year in Virginia, which was a, a state house delegates uh, or assembly uh, election. And the election was actually tied between the Democrat and the Republican. And so their constitution and their rules actually demand that when that happens, they pick a name out of a hat. And so they actually did that. And that's how this person, you know, assumed office was by having their name picked out of a hat. So when people tell me their vote doesn't matter, you know, it's it's kind of hard to tell that story and, and not think that it's doesn't. This could happen. Yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> it, and it has. And, you know, you looked at the Alabama Senate race and, you know, a lot of races pretty recently, which is unfortunate in terms of how, you know, divisive our uh, politics are and our, our country is. But I think it's also saying like, hey, you know, because things are so close, you know, votes really do matter. Yeah. Well, let's, uh, in talking about your objectives, you, you spoke about just trying to mobilize more of the vote and recognizing that very few millennials and I guess young people within this, this demographic that you're reaching out to traditionally don't vote. Is there a way you think you can capture your impact before and after the election? Or is just knowing that more of them showed up all you need to know to feel like this is been worth your time and your efforts? Yeah, so two things. One thing that we've really been focusing on as POW Action Fund and POW to some extent, because POW can encourage people to get out and vote, is asking people to pledge to vote. And so we have been, you know, saving that information and asking people to make that commitment. And then one thing that a lot of people don't actually realize is that um, voting records are public. And so anyone can look at those. So I can say, okay, like, Terry, when was the last time you voted? And I can look that up and call you out on your podcast. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but, but that is public information. And and so we do have the opportunity to actually check our metrics, you know, after November 6th and see. So another thing that we're doing um, at POW Action Fund is really focusing on specific races in specific states. So I'll give you two examples. One is we've been engaging in the Senate race in Montana, which is uh, John Tester is running there for re-election. And POW Action Fund has endorsed him and is really interested in supporting him and seeing him as a victor coming out of uh, November 6th. And then we've also, POW Action Fund has endorsed Jessica Morse, the congressional candidate for California's 4th District, which runs from Tahoe to Yosemite. And those are both places where we feel like we have a really strong community and a lot of active people and where there are people running for Congress or for Senate that really don't care about the climate. And that isn't a priority of theirs, much less, you know, in, in the case of California, actually believe that it's real. And, you know, it's kind of hard when we watch Tahoe suffer from drought and really, you know, volatile winters and forests burning and having somebody that's in Congress representing them thinking all of that has nothing to do with climate and it isn't something that we can solve. And so in those places, we certainly will have more of an opportunity to really check back on metrics, like you said, to say, okay, you know, because we focus our efforts in the state of Montana or in California's fourth district, what does that actually look like and how are we successful? And let's, let's go back to that one other point about just monitoring or checking uh, changes in, in voter rates, because I think this is a really important point, because some people who follow POW may not necessarily be in those districts, of course, but the fact that they're showing up to vote and they're registered as a voter with their values, that being environment, climate, uh, it, it does make a difference and it does have an impact, I think, for the next round. Um, uh, I was Absolutely. Yeah, maybe you could just address that a little bit for some of the listeners, because I think that's something that many of the people that follow you may not really appreciate. Yeah, absolutely. And so we are working to kind of offer those same opportunities. And I think the the voter guidebook is a great example of that. We were able to launch that this year in 35 states, so not quite 50 yet, but that's definitely the hope down the road. And I think coming out of the 2016 election, you know, when we were Protect Our Winters, just a, a 501c3 nonprofit, you know, so many people said, I don't know who to vote for or how to vote, or I don't know people's perspectives on climate. And so one of our goals and launching POW Action Fund was, you know, how do we produce a ballot guide that actually showcases people's positions on climate? And so we worked
worked with this great group called Ballot Ready, which actually Ballot Ready also launched Pod Save America's guide and quite a few other guides as well. But they basically pull from open source information all of the perspectives that people post um, candidates post about climate and hopefully help people make more informed decisions and that you know that is is nearly nationwide in a service that we provide you know beyond just the few kind of districts and states that we're really focused in. I mean is there any other message that you wanted to get out uh, to listeners just to to help reiterate the importance of getting out to, to vote no matter what state you're in. And- yeah, I think just remembering, you know, when we look at the numbers, they they really aren't there. Like not a lot of people are voting when it comes to the entire country. And so I encourage people not to be part of that group and to show up at the polls and to vote. And, you know, if you love the outdoors, that is certainly a passion that you can take to the polls and, and vote with the environment in mind. Um, and we're really excited to see how, you know, our work um, pays off in terms of engaging people and encourage everyone to follow POW Action Fund on social media. That's where you'll be able to find our Make a Plan to Vote tool and our voter guide and go from there. This is McKenna Peterson, professional skier and commercial fisherman, urging you to get out and vote Tuesday, November 6th. Do it. You, like me, may have been depressed by the finding of the last UN climate report But in that report, Nobel laureate William Nordhaus argued that the most effective way forward in saving our planet is to impose a cost on carbon. We are excited about an initiative in Washington state that proposes to do just that, and if successful, could set a healthy precedent for climate solutions ahead. I'm going to let our next guest introduce himself and talk about this groundbreaking proposal. So my name's Ahmed Gaya. I'm the field director for the Yesan 1631 campaign, uh, Washington State's historic and groundbreaking clean and air clean energy initiative. Yeah, and so I'm responsible for anything that involves human beings talking to other human beings who are voters here in the state of Washington, of which we've talked to over 400,000 in face-to-face or over-the-phone conversations in the last few weeks. That's amazing. And you guys are getting down to crunch time here. <laughs> that is right. It is five days from the election. Um, and Washington has an all mail-in voting state, so people are actually voting already. Even the New York Times has addressed uh, this current initiative as probably the biggest climate battle to watch in the election season. I'm wondering if you could just share with our office the basics about 1631 uh, and what it proposes to do. Totally. So Initiative 1631 is a practical first step to addressing climate pollution in the state of Washington and holding the largest corporate polluters in our state accountable for the pollution that they create. It puts a fee on the largest corporate polluters in Washington state uh, and reinvests the revenue from that fee into cleaning our air, expanding clean energy, and making it more affordable for more Washingtonians and protecting our natural resources. Uh, so, I mean, it would create a you know a first step in the framework for Washington to make a rapid transition off of fossil fuels into a clean energy economy, reduce over 25 million tons of pollution every year, uh, and uh, studies at the University of Massachusetts have shown uh, that would help create over 40,000 good jobs here in Washington in the clean energy sector. So, just to clarify, this essentially would be considered in the category of a carbon tax. Yeah. So Washington state has a legal distinction between a tax and a fee. uh, And we chose to go with a fee. So it's technically a carbon fee because in Washington, a fee legally must be 
dedicated to the problem that it uh, seeks to solve, in this case, the problem of climate pollution. So the legislature can't take the revenue that's generated from 1631 and redirect it into other pet projects. It goes into dedicated accounts that can only be spent to expand clean energy, clean up pollution, and protect our natural resources. And with that fee structure, I imagine there's a or plans for a special agency or group to determine how that fee is distributed if you guys are successful? Yeah. So, I mean, we think the Initiative 1631 uh, wants to have, is written by good government advocates like the League of Women Voters and the Washington Budget and Policy Center. And the basic philosophy is, you know, here in Washington, our constitution is very clear. The legislature has the power of the purse and has to make all votes on appropriating funding. Uh, but we want our legislature's decisions to be informed by the best science, the best planning, the best information from the ground from communities. So the initiative sets up a board that's appointed by the governor. Uh, it's in the Department of Commerce. Um, and that board is representatives from science, from the clean energy sector, from tribal nations who steward so much of our lands, uh, community leaders. It involves workers in the fossil fuel industry. Um, and those folks uh, make recommendations to the legislature of a spending plan, of the best way to invest this money to get the best bang for our buck in terms of cleaning up pollution rapidly and effectively uh, and expanding clean energy around the state. And at the end of the day, the legislature makes the final votes on appropriating the funding. Yeah. And, and speaking of using the scientific community for, for backing and support in this uh, fairly t timely initiative in light of the United Nations Scientific Panel uh, comment with this latest climate report and uh, obviously Dr. William Nordhaus's recommendations on best way to solve that or stem the tide of climactic change. And that is essentially a carbon tax or in your case, a carbon fee. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, uh, in the Sunday Seattle Times this past week, there was a letter that was signed by over 200 climate scientists and health experts uh, across the state of Washington uh, calling for voters to pass 1631. That included five of the authors on that UN report uh, that you cited, the ones that live here in Washington. Uh, and in that same Seattle Times, there was a letter to the editor from the chair of the University of Washington's Atmospheric Sciences Department, co-signed by 20 one other professors in the department saying that the science is clear and the scientific community here in Washington is almost unanimously behind passing 1631. That's great. Um, wonderful that you have that support. Um, let's talk a little bit about your opposition. The last I checked, I think last night when I sent an email to you, was I think the current numbers uh, that kind of built from the Western States Petroleum Association is a little over $31 million in opposition of 1631. How are you guys addressing that? Are you concerned about that? Or are you feeling pretty good about your position right now? I mean, we know that Washingtonians want clean air and clean energy. Repeatedly, that's something that they say in poll after poll over the last decade. And when you talk to Washingtonians at the door, hundreds of thousands of them, like we have at the door and over the phone, it's, it's clearly a priority for them. But as you pointed out, our opponents have spent more money than anyone has ever spent in any election in Washington history, over $31 million, and 99.5% of that money comes from out-of-state oil companies. So this is really an oil industry funded campaign, basically wholly and entirely. And in fact, just to demonstrate just how ridiculous this is and how disconnected from the state of Washington these companies are, you'll see this morning we put a video up on our Facebook channel that's getting some traction um, of Washingtonians who are uh, abroad around the country and around the world delivered uh, a special interest gusher award to the CEOs of four of those oil companies in London, Houston, Washington, D.C., and San Ramon, California. Um, I, you know, thank you know, congratulating them on uh, the most money ever spent from out of state to try and buy a Washington election. <laughs> well, I think that certainly addresses my point before that the opposition is recognizing this as a potential key election as far as a, a, a tide change changer 
in this idea of uh, a carbon tax or carbon fees as a way forward. Totally. I think, you know, $31 million is going to make this a close election. We have no illusions about that. There is a tremendous amount of disinformation that is being spread. In fact, uh, just yesterday, uh, we held a press conference with a number of Latino small business owners whose names appeared on a, a mailer that was sent to the Latino community here in Washington, saying that they were endorsers of the No on 1631 campaign, that they urged their fellow voters to vote no, when in fact they had no idea that their names were going to appear on that mailer. They did not understand the issue, or some of them were actually uh, supporters of 1631 and said that they were voting yes, and they were quite upset that their wow. names were being used fraudulently. So, you know, there's a tremendous amount of disinformation uh, and dirty tricks that are being played by the oil industry. It's going to make this a close election, but we're the ones actually on the ground having real conversations with Washingtonians. Like I said, we've spoken with over 300,000 Washingtonians just one-on-one, -on -one, either over the phone are at their doors, uh, and we believe that is going to make the difference, and Washingtonians will make the right choice on this in the next few days. That's great. Well, speaking of good information, what would be the site or resource you would direct uh, most people or listeners if they wanted to do a little bit of a deeper dive on the issue? Absolutely. Well, the first place is there's a lot of great information on our website, which is yeson1631.org. Uh, there's also a few organizations that have put out really good guides on 1631. One of them, the Union of Concerned Scientists, speaking again of our support from the scientific community, have done a number of posts kind of walking through what 1631 would do, what it means for our health and our climate, and also a post kind of going going through the arguments that the oil industry has put out and debunking them one by one. So going to their website, uh, UCSUS, so Union of Concerned Scientists, US, UCSUS.org, or just Googling Union of Concerned Scientists 1631. Uh, and then for a really deep dive, Puget Sound Sage, which is an organization that advocates for low-income Washingtonians uh, and communities of color in our state, uh, has put out a couple of other really good guides and analysis of what does 1631 mean for their communities. Uh, so their website at PugetSoundSage.org is another great resource. You know, I should point out, 1631 is proposed by the largest and most diverse coalition in Washington state history. So on one side, we have the oil industry, and on the other side, you have the largest, not only behind a climate or environmental initiative, but behind any issue in the history of our state, over 400 organizations, over 500 businesses who are standing shoulder to shoulder and saying, this is time for us to take action on climate change. Unions of tribal nations, uh, communities of color and low-income groups, environmental groups, large and small, you know, and, and that choice is really clear. You either stand with uh, the vast majority of the community of Washington or with these out-of-state oil companies. That's fantastic. Well, congratulations so much on your your coalition, and obviously, I'll be watching the race closely myself. I, you know, here we we certainly want to encourage our Washington state-based listeners to support your cause. But uh, can you see any implication or way an out-of-state voter could support your your initiative and your cause? Uh, perhaps an awareness, sharing information. Yeah, I think one definite way is, like I said, there is a tremendous amount of misinformation. So if you have family members or friends in Washington state, uh, only about a third of voters have voted yet. So two thirds of voters are still voting. So please reach out to your friends and family members. First and foremost, make sure that they vote. That is the first key thing, just that folks actually vote. Uh, and then secondly, making sure they understand and have the facts about 1631, because I guarantee you uh, the No campaign is sending a piece of mail every single day to millions of Washingtonians. Uh, so they're getting lots of misinformation in their mailboxes, on their television, and they might not, um, you know, we, we're being outspent two to one. They might not have heard uh, some of the facts and the truth from our coalition. So letting them know that. Uh, you can also, if you really want to help out and be involved, you can call voters in Washington, have conversation with them about the initiative. We have a tool up that makes it really easy. All you need is your phone and a computer, and you can go to yeson1631.org 
forward slash call um, and get set up right away. We showed up to the festival and fell out of the back of the van. We were just in time to see our favorite band. Okay, guys, you are now more well-informed adventure activists. Let's get out there and vote. To learn more about the great work being done by Chase Huntley and the Wilderness Society, go to wilderness.org. Thanks to Coralie Kenna for her time. Find out more about their work at patagonia.com or check out maketimetovote.org. Again, I'd also like to remind you of the incredible resource put together by Alex and his team in the Vote the Outdoors campaign at the Outdoor Industry Association. Check it out at outdoorindustry.org or just Google Vote the Outdoors. If you want to connect with Protect Our Winners and find their voter guide, go to powactionfund.org. And you just heard a number of great resources to help support the Protect Washington Act. We want to thank Ahmed again for his time and are keeping our fingers crossed for this initiative for our planet okay usual business thanks to evan phillips for helping with the production of this episode we connected through his amazing podcast the fern line go check it out thanks to gavin mcclurg for some of his insights and to emily williams for her help in producing the content of this valuable toolkit episode and to you thanks for listening to episode 16 please share this episode to help get the tribe out to vote on tuesday We hope you've been with us from the beginning, but if not, check out the other episodes on our site on iTunes, Google Play, or SoundCloud. If this episode sparked conversation or inspired you to take some action in this election cycle, please let us know. You know, the best way to support this podcast is to share with a friend or two. Your show of support, as always, means so much. Thanks all. Let's go voting. Then let's keep adventuring. And now it's Sunday And I don't ever wanna go I gotta find a way to bring you all along Think it's called love And respect And sometimes getting Very, very